Hi, I'm Nick. I'm Rory. And I'm Jay. And this is Midnight Chats, an Octavian companion show where we sit down with your favorite paranormal authors, investigators, and researchers to have a chat about their work, the phenomenon, and all the strangeness in between. And on this episode, we are joined by author, chief scientist at the Institute of Noetic Sciences, and professor of integral and transpersonal psychology at the California Institute of Integral Studies, Dr. Dean Radin. What a hell of a titles. Yeah, I know. Yep. Like that was yeah. I, I was starting to run out of breath there by the end of that. <laughs> yeah. Uh yeah, no. Uh this was fascinating. Yeah. I think in my opinion I'm putting this top 5 most mind-blowing experience I've had in an interview just by the fact that uh, he repeatedly kept telling me things that made me need to go have an existential crisis. No, I just from like I mean, yeah, my I, I literally said in reply to one of his one of the questions was uh, my brain just broke a little bit. My feet are younger than my head. Yep. Yeah, that that's one, weird. That's going to mess with me forever. Yep. That now lives rent-free within me. Yep. Yeah, it's wild. And, like, of course, and you know what's funny is I knew what he was saying, but I never thought about it that way, you know? Yeah, it, it's... All right, do we want to just let yeah. the listeners listen to it? Yep. Yeah. I think that's the plan. I think that's what we need to do. All right. All right. This is Noctivigan speaking with Dr. Dean Rayner. Woo! with Dr. Dean Raiden. Dean, thank you so much for giving us your time today. It's my pleasure. Okay, so uh, launching right into it, our first question is one that we ask all of our guests because we are a book club, uh, which is what are you reading and what sort of books tend to line your bookshelves? I'm reading a book on uh, dual aspect monism uh, okay. by uh, Harold Ockmansbacher. I think that's right. Um, and uh, Dean Rickles, I believe. Okay. So uh, a physicist and a philosopher, and it's about a uh, a form of philosophy that seems to be more compatible with understanding psychic phenomena than the more conventional scientific philosophy of materialism. Hmm. Oh, fascinating. So right on topic then. Hmm. So with, with real magic then, I mean... I mean, that that seems to be at kind of part of what's sitting at the heart of real magic, this marrying of ancient mysticism and uh, modern science. So would you say that has sort of been the trajectory of your research, where that's taking you? Yeah, it's very difficult to understand how psychic and mystical experiences can be explained if you're taking a worldview, which is the current scientific worldview. Mm hmm. So that kind of forces you to start looking at other worldviews, which, in other words, means other philosophies. Hmm. And, of course, philosophers have been talking about these kinds of things for a long time. Uh, in the esoteric traditions, you'll probably be talking more about idealism, which is what I'm talking about in my book, Real Magic. Uh, the problem with idealism is that uh, it does seem as though there really is a physical world out there. 
that we as humans may or may not actually be manipulating at all. It seems to have its own regularities. In which case you need a worldview that is that, that allows for the physical world to exist in the way that it apparently does, but also allows for consciousness to be fundamental in some way. So dual aspect monism has that. It, it's the, the metaphor there is uh, mind and matter are two sides of the same coin. They're different from each other, but they're very tightly integrated with each other. And from that perspective, the idea that mind and matter can interact also in non-local ways, which is important, uh, suddenly becomes possible. So it's kind of halfway between today's science and the pure esoteric view. It's somewhere right in the middle. That's fascinating. So, I mean, the idea of... Uh of consciousness being either a critical aspect to reality or some people contend specifically the ideal is it's the fundamental bedrock of reality. Uh, that is an idea that we've encountered, not just in your book, but in research into esoteric philosophy, like you were saying, as well as in some of the more, uh, some of the more modern or more out there sides of ufology. Um, so, I guess with that in mind, one of the, I guess, heart sticky parts, though, of the idea of a consciousness universe that we've always got a little stuck on is what to make of objective reality in the sense of there's a tree and we can all go and touch that tree and we can describe it has some of the same features and maybe come away with the conclusion that we've all encountered the same tree. So I guess if you were inclined to uh, think one way or the other, if it is a consciousness universe that we'd be mutually constructing that tree. Or is it more animistic or uh, more based in idealism where the tree is somehow constructing itself? Yeah, so we we tend to anthropomorphize everything and imagine that we're we're doing it. Uh, but my guess is that, as in a panpsychist perspective, that everything that has any form of sentience, possibly including all the way down to electrons and below, that we're all engaged in creating the world as we see it. So yes, the tree is partially sentient and creating itself, but we are too. So the, the, the challenge in all of this is if that were true, how could we test it? Is it, is it a testable idea? And it turns out that it's really, really difficult to test these kinds of ideas. So we stick with looking under the light post because that's where the light is. Uh, we we want to know what's, what is the actual state of affairs of reality, but we're, we're not quite able to do that yet. It's fascinating. Um, now, I, I guess on the topic of things that uh, we can test, in your books, one of the experiments that blew our collective brain pans uh, were the blessed chocolate tea and water experiments. I, I think uh, Jay actually screamed about them a little. Uh, yeah, I, I, I did. I was <laughs> I was raised in a staunch atheist materialistic household, and this was one of the things where it's like, oh, come on. <laughs> no, but it uh, it fascinated us. And so those experiments showed relatively small effects with intentional direction of will. But we wanted to ask if it's possible the similar phenomenon could be happening unintentionally on a much larger scale. Like, for example, let's say there's a drug that the media or the general population is talking up as a miracle cure. Would you be inclined to think that that would have a direct impact on the efficacy of the medication in action? That is one of the implications of those studies. Yeah. Like when we do a psi experiment in a laboratory, we're not magically causing it to arise somehow. We're, we're allowing 
it to reveal itself under right. controlled conditions. So what we can say then is from the laboratory studies that all kinds of psychic things are going on all the time. And so the people who call themselves psychics, clairvoyants or mediums, they they have a, a slightly different talent and those effects are happening to them most of the time and they're aware of it. But lots of other experiments now using things like unconscious physiological measures show that people who have no idea that they can sense the future, for example, they still can, even though they don't even know that they're doing it. Mm -hmm. So yeah, these, these phenomena are simply, we're permeated with it, but we generally don't notice it very much. Now, I suppose, uh, I mean, on that note, it seems like one of those things where you'd have to almost teach yourself to notice it, to get to the point where it's, I guess, becoming a more common part of your everyday perception of reality. Mm -hmm. um, Whereas historically, a lot of those abilities, they were really wrapped up in, you know, they're wrapped up in the religious or the cultural icons of a particular civilization. Specifically, we're talking about magic. Um, and in the book, one of the things that also interested us was how the ceremonial objects, things like robes or candles or crystals, seem to uh, increase the efficacy of these sorts of uh, these sorts of abilities. Now, with that in mind, we wanted to ask, do you think that our imagination or the meaning we attribute to these abilities impacts our ability to, uh, to access them? Absolutely, yes. So the, the, the full title of the, the book I'm reading on dual aspect monism is that it, it is talking about the role of meaning in connecting mind and matter. So if you gave somebody a ceremonial uh, object of some type, and they had no idea what it was, would it still carry magical properties or, or facilitate it in some way? My, my guess is no. And in fact, we, we did an experiment kind of like this. It's not quite published yet, but it was the idea of taking a Buddha relic. A Buddha relic is you have, you have an advanced meditator who passes away and they generally will burn them in a fire. And then afterwards, there are little pieces that look like crystals that are left over. So it's called a Buddha relic because presumably the advanced meditative state has changed their physical body in a way that is then captured in these little things. So we asked uh, clairvoyance to, we, we put the, the Buddha relic in a little box and told the clairvoyant that there's a Buddha relic in the box and like, you know, feel what it feels like. And then later we'll ask you to, with a whole bunch of boxes, we'll put it in one of them without telling you which one. And now, since you remember what that felt like, you can then select which box has the Buddha relic. So when we first demonstrate to them what the Buddha relic feels like, all of them 100% say, oh yeah, it feels different. Later, when we bring them in and we don't tell them which box it's in, it's completely a chance. So when they know something about it, they feel all kinds of things. When they don't know, they don't feel anything. So I think the same is true for any kind of ritual object, that you could be carrying around something which a magician would say, this is the most powerful thing ever. And they would use, like if it was a knife or something, they'd use it as a butter knife and they'd have no idea what it was because it wouldn't do anything for them. I wonder how much that would play into thinking about like on the other side of all of this, like in the more paranormal world and thinking about how there are so many people out there that attribute a lot to like haunted objects and things like that. And I wonder if how, how much of the haunted object 
is there because of everybody's belief in the object being haunted. Yeah, I'm sure it makes a big difference. Yeah, Some of it is expectation. Probably a lot of it is expectation. Right. The underlying question, though, is are some objects imbued with something that makes them different? Right. So the answer there is probably yes as well, to a small extent. That's like our studies with uh, with blessed tea and mm -hmm. blessed chocolate and stuff. That was double-blind condition. So we were able to control for expectation, and it still showed an effect. The effects are pretty small. I mean, statistically, you can see it. Uh, you need a fair number of trials and a number of people in order to be able to see it. Uh, but a lot of this stuff is driven, especially in the uncontrolled everyday world. I would say the vast majority of it is expectation. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. Now, as you mentioned there, generally speaking in Psy research, and this came up in the book, um, the results that are found in the laboratory setting are are relatively minor. They, they're expressed on the statistical level. So with that in mind, we wanted to talk about, I mean, the theoretical upper ends of, of where that ability could go, those Merlin-class magicians you brought up. Mm -hmm. If those people do exist today, I guess the, the, easy, the easy question is, where are they? Um, do you think that this is something that's still happening today, or has there been some sort of shift that makes it so those capacities are maybe not discovered or not able to be developed in our modern setting? Yeah, that's that's a really interesting question, and we don't have a really good answer to it at this point. My my guess is that uh, there are people out there who are extremely good at various kinds of psychic things. Um, most of them would probably know it. Uh, many would be extremely successful in whatever their chosen profession is, because as you can imagine, having any of these skills and applying it to whatever your work happens to be you're going to simply be more effective than most other people. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, so so I don't have a good answer to that. Uh, the reason why I think that there are probably very talented people out there and we don't see them is because they know you're coming from a mile away and they don't want to be seen. Yeah. They will act perfectly normal and there's no way you could tell because they would be perfectly aware that the moment that they come out, so to, so to speak, and start walking on water, their life would be in danger quickly right. so they, they i mean who wants to reveal that i mean that's a fair point if i was at that level i probably wouldn't reveal it because i'd be terrified yeah no we i mean we know how people respond to anybody who's even slightly different right when you, you consider the, the the fear associated with somebody's like somebody who has a example a very good telepathic ability if they reveal that nobody's going to want to be around that person because everybody has secrets and they don't want to, to, to tell what those secrets are. And so they would start to significantly fear somebody who has those kinds of talents. And it becomes much, much worse if somebody claims that they have psychokinetic ability. Because now you can harm people at a distance. You could, you could heal people too, but you can do all kinds of things that would destroy this, this internal sense of sovereignty about yourself. And that, that is a frightening thought. Uh, Dean, have you ever heard of the haunting of Alma Fielding? I have. Okay, that was uh, that was just something that kind of bobbed to the surface while we were talking about that because if it, many people believe that poltergeist activity, like what was happening to Alma, is potentially you know self generated and 
Think about the extent to which her life was absolutely destroyed by these abilities that she was showcasing and the extent to which Nandor Fodor and the rest of the psychical society attempted to essentially exploit her for their own fame and to continue gaining funding and attention. So, yeah, I'd probably hide, too. It it is interesting because it also uh, reminds me of some things that we've read in uh, some more esoteric lore regarding hidden adepts, the secret masters, the idea that there is this subversive community, I mean, or maybe not community, but individuals at least, who are, I guess, more tapped in or more more in the know or more connected to the field of consciousness. And because of that reason, they have to stay in the shadows sort of manipulating things. It's a very comic book idea, but which, of course, is why I like it. <laughs> yeah, those legends go way, way back. And, and some of it is probably stimulated by shamans, right? So you consider in the modern world, people who are highly psychic are sometimes misdiagnosed as schizophrenic because they're hearing voices. Fortunately, there is a program uh, run by psychiatrists at Yale University who are studying people who by every measure are perfectly normal, except that they hear voices. So is this some kind of a brain thing happening or do they think something is talking to them? Well, we don't really understand, but they're not schizophrenic and that they're not disturbed by this, but nevertheless, they can hear, they can hear things that other people can't hear. So that's a little bit refreshing because it means that in in the old days, meaning not too long ago, if anybody reported these kinds of effects, uh, they would automatically be given pretty strong antipsychotics and so on. Uh, So this is yet another example of these kinds of abilities are probably distributed throughout the population. Uh, it, It becomes clear when somebody is disturbed by these phenomena like they think they're being attacked or having thoughts inserted in their head, they might actually be psychic, but they will be driven nuts by the phenomenon, either because they don't like it, they don't know how to stop it, or other people will call them nuts and they'll start believing it after a while. So I've always wanted to do an experiment with schizophrenics, who would be at least people who have been diagnosed as schizophrenic, to test them in the various kinds of tests that we do, but we can never get uh, ethical approval to do that for obvious reasons. But I do suspect that some people who claim that they're being attacked and so on uh, might be super psychic, but not controlled. And, and it, after a while, drives them batty. It's, it's fascinating. I, I would be also very interested to see. I mean, I don't know. I don't know how you'd begin to test this, but if there was any sort of overlap between uh, individuals, you know, who may may have psyability, and individuals who report things like demonic possession—the idea of another entity entering them—maybe it's yeah. more connecting to a type of information that's harmful to them. Yeah. So it'd be very interesting uh, in the case of demonic possession if somebody had no religious background at all; they didn't have any context for it, uh, because they think that one one of the things that happens. This is probably more with Catholicism than other religions, but uh, if you grow up in that tradition, it scares the bejesus out of you, so to speak, mm-hmm. that yeah. there are these things around. You read it in the catechism, and you're constantly reminded that they're trying to get you. Mm-hmm. So any negative thing that happens is suddenly that the demons are upon you. Yeah, uh, That's why I, That's why it's, it's interesting that people sometimes report those things. It also kind of explains why if somebody goes through an exorcism and they really believe that whole story, 
then it could work in the same way that psychotherapy would work for somebody else because their beliefs have been tweaked and now the thing is no longer here. That essentially is what's going on with people who, uh, who promote ways of doing psychic self-defense. You know, surround yourself with white light, do these kinds of rituals, and you will convince yourself that whatever was bothering you will go away. And a combination of purely psychological reasons combined with maybe possibly something else uh, could help ameliorate those kinds of problems. Uh, it's it's fascinating because it also reminds us of much of what we've read regarding uh, UFOs and incidents of high strangeness and that there is this almost reflective quality to it. It takes on uh, forms based off of our assumptions. Uh, do you think that there is likely a connection between things like other well, other types of anomalous phenomenon and psi? I don't see how we can easily extract it from, from virtually any kind of experience. So I've heard from my buddies who are deeply involved in the UFO business that somehow consciousness is deeply engaged in that phenomenon because the, the objects, whatever they happen to be, seem to be reactive not only to our observation, but even to our thoughts. Yeah. So there's some kind of overlap going on there. I guess going into that a little deeper, uh, you talk about theurgy in the book and communion with the dead or other non-human intelligences. Uh, and as you note there, regardless of what cultural meaning we've attributed to them, the ontological reality of the entities is still very much in question. Now, given the anecdotes you've heard and the research you've done, I guess, have you seen anything that would incline you to think one way or the other regarding are these actual entities or more re cognitive reflections like one of Jung's archetypes? I, I really don't know. I mean, that's that's I completely it, fair. I say that's fair. Yeah. So the, I mean, the, the debate within the community that's studying uh, evidence for survival after bodily death, it's deeply associated with these kinds of issues. Are there actual independent spirits? Are they non-human? Have they ever been human? All that stuff. So the reason why I find that it's extremely difficult to reach some kind of conclusion is because of uh, the jargon in the field is LAP, L-A-P, living agent psi. Well, how do you separate uh, what a medium says that he or she is talking to, which they perceive as a departed person, uh, from their own telepathy or clairvoyance? Right. So depending on which side of, of the fence you sit on, if you strongly believe that there was survival after death, you will say, no, it couldn't possibly be psychic effects, psychic effects in the living, meaning the medium in this case because we don't see that kind of effect in the laboratory. To which I would respond, since I'm on the other side of the fence, yeah, but in the, labor the laboratory is not a good measure because in the laboratory, we're squeezing out all of the real world stuff that creates very high motivation, for, for, which is quite different than if you're dealing with spontaneous, gigantic psi things that happen in, in the real world. Right. So to, to make an assessment about what is the upper limit of actual living psi, we don't know. But so we look, you know, look at a poltergeist case where things are flying around the room. Well, there's pretty good documented evidence that that happens. Is that due to invisible spirits throwing things around? Or like Bill Roll and others had, had pointed out, is this due to an agent, typically a teenager who's going through puberty and is upset in some way and they become the focus point? Because if you take that person out of the picture, then there's no more poltergeist activity. So 
I would say that there's the inklings of evidence that psi in the wild, in the real world, in the right context can be extremely strong. Like true magic happening, it's pretty rare, but it can happen. Uh, whereas the moment you allow that possibility, then virtually all of the evidence for survival after death can be reinterpreted, or at least it muddies the water significantly. I mean, so going into that a little deeper, I mean, we have this, uh, as you mentioned, that we have this whole issue where in the lab, that's not the ideal setting to get these powerful psi effects. Do you see any sort of way that we can get past that, at least in terms of scientific experimentation, or is the subjective side of it, meaning, you know, are these actual entities, what is actually going on behind these impulses? Is that something that is largely going to remain outside of our uh, ability to perceive or record? Well, this is a topic we talk about almost all the time. How do, <laughs> how do we improve the reliability and the magnitude of the effects that we see? Um, we may not have the right epistemological methods now like the, for in, within science, to be able to evoke these large-scale effects and to get ethical approval to do it. So I kind of suspect that you could create things in the laboratory that would not be ethical because it might put people's lives at danger, or at least they think they might be at danger, including things like, uh, like really strong electrical shocks and other kinds of stimuli that would produce these effects reliably. But we can't do that. So yeah. we either have the choice of doing field investigations where you don't have control. You might see something big, but you don't have control, so you can't tell what it is. Uh, or wait until uh, the use of psychedelics becomes legal in enough places yeah. that you can give people pretty strong psychedelics and uh, engage them in experiments like oftentimes with uh, ayahuasca and psilocybin, for example, people report shared telepathic experiences. Yep. Well, that wouldn't be that difficult to actually test right. if we got permission to, to do that. But so far, it's still kind of in a gray area for the law. So we, we, we can't do that yet. You can do it informally, but that's not very useful because you can't publish it. So we're, we're waiting for the world to catch up. It's interesting. Uh, we one of the books we are going to be covering coming up is uh, DMT Entity Encounters, which is a recording of a symposium that was held in 2017. And I literally just got done today reading a passage that was describing this exact uh, this exact conundrum. Well, and yeah. Jack, or Jack, a gentleman that we had on our show, had this experience and talked about it uh, on our show. Yeah, uh, in college, yeah. not in laboratory settings. Yeah, no, but... in college. Yeah. <laughs> In the psychedelics in the real world are involved all kinds of very strange things, some of which are psychic, some of which probably overlap with theurgy, right? But, you know, the, the problem with all of these spontaneous experiences are that you don't really know, you can't know what is actually happening. That's right. why most of the work that I do is in the laboratory, because I'm, I'm interested in the ontological reality of these things and not simply what the range of human experience is. Now. So, I mean, if psychedelics did become uh, open for research, is that something you think you'd be bringing into your lab? Oh, yeah. Well, we've, we've discussed it many times, even, this, even something like marijuana. So if you, if you take enough marijuana, you get pushed pretty hard. Uh, if you do it under conditions where you're, you're in the Gonsfeld state or, or 
some kind of sensory deprivation state, uh, you get even stronger effects. So we discussed that and we decided it's still too risky, right? It's not, it's okay in California. It's not federally okay. And so right. when we do a study, we have to abide by federal guidelines. And so we're, you know, we're not in a hospital at our laboratory. We might be able to get uh, approval if we had a hospital setting, but even then it's a little tricky. So we, right. we, we don't do it, at least not, not in a controlled way. I mean, it's probably only a couple of years away at the rate that it's going that the majority of the states will have uh, legalized marijuana. So that yeah. one might be on the docket for you soon. DMT might be a little down the line. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah we, it would need to be federally approved. Right. That's the, that's the tricky bit. Yeah. And of course, we will even discuss about uh, going offshore, going three miles offshore into international waters where you can basically do anything. Right. Uh, but even then... You still need ethical approval if you right. want to publish the results. Yeah. So, you know, we're we're limited in what we can do. Now, in terms of those limitations, I mean, what are some of the other, I guess, frontiers you'd like to push but aren't able to right now uh, due to X, Y, or Z reason? Well, the, the fundamental X, Y, Z reason is always the same. It's funding. Right. So because like some people say, well, it, you know, it, certainly you've proven that mind matter interaction is a real thing by now. Uh, and so how does it work? Well, we don't have a good question. We don't have a good answer for that other than it's a little hand waving about quantum mechanics. But if you look at the kinds of targets that have been tested over the years, some physical target, it's a pretty wide range. It's basically from photons up to human behavior and health. It's a pretty broad range. But then you look in physics about what kind of instruments and measurements can you take in physics? The vast majority of them have never been looked at in this domain, right? So there's all kinds of effects named after physicists over the years of uh, things having to do with the, the way that atoms behave and so on. And there's all kinds of interesting ways of measuring it, but it costs money to do that. And so we don't have funding to be able to get the instruments to be able to see, well, maybe Maybe we can begin to understand the underlying mechanisms if we're able to use uh, an MRI, for example, in an experimental context, or look at Bose-Einstein condensates or all kinds of things. So one of, the, one of the targets I wanted to use for many years was entangled photons. Well, you can make those in the laboratory, but there's, it was quite expensive to do that. But a couple of years ago, uh, a company in Germany made a system which allows you to produce about a thousand entangled photons per second on a tabletop thing, a tabletop piece of apparatus. So I, I raised funds and, and bought two of those things uh, and had we did experiments. We had a colleague in France independently doing similar experiments. And we found that uh, the mind could influence the strength of entanglement in photons. So it kind of tells me that uh, mind and matter probably interact at every level we can imagine. It's, it's easier to detect in certain kinds of physical systems, uh, but so far we have never used a physical system that cannot be influenced in some way, provided that we have a way of being able to measure what's going on in that system. So if we put out a big boulder, for example, and we're mentally pushing at it, that's an experiment that's not going to work because we can't, we can't measure enough about a boulder to see what's happening. By contrast, 
with one of the, here's an experiment I want to do now, but I have to raise money for it. The atomic clocks now, we're not talking about GPS, we're talking about standalone atomic clocks using things like strontium uh, oscillations and strontium atoms or rubidium or something like that. They are so good now that if you take two atomic clocks and you, and you put one, the width of a paper, like a sheet of paper, about a, just a fraction of a millimeter above the other one, the lower one will run slower than the upper one. Actually, the clocks are sensitive enough to be able to detect a difference in time flow from the distance of one paper width away. And of course, if you're a foot away, it's that much easier. The reason is that uh, we don't often think about relativity in these terms, but gravity slows down time. And so you can now detect that pretty easily. So if in a laboratory, if we had two of these atomic clocks, and by the way, the, you can now buy an atomic clock standalone the size of a quarter. It's like a little, it's in the size of a chip, costs $5,000, but it's no, no bigger than a quarter. And it's extremely accurate. So if, okay, in a laboratory, we could take two of these clocks, synchronize them to start exactly the same time, and then put one a couple of feet higher than the other and target one of them with your mind. Well, if you could change the flow of time in one or the other of, then it would suggest that we have our mind is able to start manipulating either time or gravity or mass, one or the other. And I think that would be quite interesting because, I mean, we, we, I would love to have somebody come in the lab and levitate, but so far they're not, they don't seem to be interested in doing that. The best we've seen so far are people hopping around, but that's, that's not levitating. Whereas here, you'd be able to show at an extremely small scale that maybe it is possible for the mind to manipulate gravity. That's, that's wild. Yeah, and now I'm just thinking about the fact that my feet are younger than my head, and that's, <laughs> that's never going to be right. Yes, yeah. that is exactly right, and, but it gets evened out when you're laying down flat. Oh, yeah, yeah there we go. They, 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 yeah. they touch base every night when I go to sleep. Yeah, it also is an argument for why you should do inversion therapy every so often. I was about to say, hang upside down at night yes. so that everything yes. evens out. Otherwise, you're going to have super young feet and then your head is going to be 8,000 years old. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, that, now, that broke my brain a little yeah, bit. Yeah, no, just a little. <laughs> uh, now, I mean, on that topic, talking anything about anytime quantum mechanics are brought up, obviously in the in the field of, of paranormal studies, uh, often enough, uh, quantum mechanics is invoked as this sort of cure-all for any sort of anomalous issue uh, where the phenomenon runs up against, you know, the cold hard facts of reality. And often enough, the argument we'll hear against it is that uh, quantum effects have never been validated at a macro scale. Uh and that said, every now and then we hear that that might not be the case. I was just wondering if you could weigh in on that. It has a quant have quantum effects been shown to operate at a scale larger than quantum? Oh yeah, oh definitely. No, that that's the whole point about an, uh, a Bose-Einstein condensate, which you can see with your eye. It's like you know, like a little piece of, of dice that are practically that big. Uh, that operates as a single holistic entity for quantum mechanical reasons. Uh, the other way of saying, well, you can do uh, entanglement connections uh, from Earth to a satellite. Well, that's macro, certainly in the, in the sense of distance. The, the underlying effect is electromagnetic, and it's an electromagnetic interaction, but 
nevertheless, the spatial distance is definitely macro. Uh, and of course, the rising uh, evidence for quantum biology, which which is now it it was sort of a cool topic. It's getting hotter as new systems are are devised or found that can sustain quantum behavior in hot, wet living systems. So I, it's just a matter of time before we find larger and larger systems. I mean, there already are. You you can show a. a Schrodinger's cat effect in a uh, on something the size of a chip, but you can see it with your naked eye. So, I mean, yeah, these are macroscopic. If macroscopic means that you can see it with your eye, then yeah, you can see quantum effects with your eye. That's that is that is mind blowing. <laughs> um, all right, now I guess moving into uh, some of those larger effects, like the poltergeist you were talking about. Um, in both our readings and in your book, there's a common assertion specifically regarding NDEs that they cause lasting changes in the life or worldview of the person who had one. Uh, things like becoming vegetarian or becoming more empathetic. And we couldn't help but notice that those changes also seem to crop up in, uh, well, in, in encounters with the anomalous, encounters with Bigfoot or UFO contact or other forms of non-human intelligences. And as we already mentioned, there's some sort of commonality between uh, those phenomenon and psi. I guess the our question would be, what do you make of that through line? Why do does there seem to be a set way in which it impacts us? I'm not sure there's a set way, but the idea that some experiences will transform you is very clear. In a sense, that's what PTSD is all about. So it can go in a negative direction or it can go in a positive direction. I mean, somebody could have a mystical experience and be a different person afterwards, or they can be in war and they will be a different person afterwards. So the, the idea of a, a transformative experience essentially shattering your belief system, and then you have to reintegrate it. So, and then the E will certainly do that, uh, but lots of, lots of events, a car accident could do that. I mean, all, all kinds of things can cause you to question your belief system. And most of the time we don't, we're not analyzing our beliefs as a system from which you, the, you know, the way that it's your lens on the, on the world. If something comes along and shatters that, you have to put it back together again. So for a while, hours, maybe days, uh, it may not be put back together yet. And actually then a person is extremely vulnerable. So to, to give a little anecdote here, uh, I worked on the program, which is now known as Stargate. So way back then, uh, this, this is slightly before my time, but I was told this story that when a contract monitor would be sent from some agency in Washington to find out what those strange people in California were talking about, about remote viewing, because the people in Washington didn't believe it. So they'd send a contract monitor out who was very skeptical and wanted to see a miracle, basically. They wanted to see somebody do remote viewing so they could see if it was real or not. And so rather than having them watch somebody do this, generally what Russell Targ would do is say, well, just, you know, you can be the psychic. We'll have you do the remote viewing. So one of Russell's special skills, which we don't understand very well, is that if he is the interviewer, who, and, and some just random person is a viewer who's going to do the, the psychic thing. Russell has the ability to provide permission in some anomalous way so that the person, even if they were highly skeptical before, 
they can still play, play the role of a viewer and generally do extremely well. So in one case, a contract monitor comes, they act as the remote viewer, they do a spectacular remote viewing, and they have a meltdown because they know it wasn't fake. They did it themselves and they're freaking out. So their belief system is shattered because they were coming in with it pretty rigid to begin with. And what was learned after a while is you don't let somebody in that position immediately go back to Washington because they will be perceived as a crazy person. Now they, they slipped LSD into your water or something. So you have to give them a little bit of time to have themselves reintegrate. And the way that you reintegrate in this case is you simply tell them that the world as you knew it before is exactly the same way as it is now, except that your eyes are opened a little bit wider. There are other things going on that, that, are, that can happen, but the, the rest of the world is still the same. And that, that helps the person calm down from this shattered condition and reintegrates more quickly. I mean, so on that topic, I mean, you, I had no idea until you just said it that you worked on the Stargate program. Um, now, obviously, it, it comes up in your book that we there is mainstream academic pushback to any of this sort of research. I believe there was a couple of journals you brought up that offhand would refuse to publish anything regarding the topic. Um, do you think since Stargate's closure, governmental interest in this topic has continued on? Well, I hope so. I mean, the, the phenomenon is real. It's useful in some conditions. One of the reasons why I think it may not be continuing, if it was and classified, I wouldn't know about it because I'm outside of that world now. But the reason why I think it may not be going is because we don't sometimes think about it, but the, the United States is a very religious country. This country was composed of people who were thrown out of their original countries because they were too radical, uh, oftentimes radical about religion. And so we, we have a very strange mixture of people here, many of whom, for reasons I never quite figured out, are in Congress. Well, Congress allocates federal money to do things, including classified projects. And many are completely dead set against doing anything psychic because they imagine that it's demonic. So the government shouldn't be doing anything about it. Therefore, the government doesn't do anything about it. So the only reason why Stargate was happening in the first place is because there were suspicions, which turned out to be true, that during the Cold War, the Russians were heavily engaged in this. Of course, they coming from a slightly different culture where this didn't have the same demonic overtones. And that's, as we know, even today with UAPs, the reason why their government is a little bit more open about it and had a program and still has a program is because of threat. That's the thing that pushes people. It pushes even beyond the fear of demonic something or other. It's because there might be something that we're missing. We better know about it. Much of what was going on at Stargate, in fact, much of what I was doing had to do not only with some experiments, but also threat analysis. Like we heard this thing out of China. Can we believe that? You know, we have this. This uh, person who defected from, the, from Russia was telling us things. Can we believe that? So part of our job is to figure out, well, is this a, a believable threat or not? Yeah, national that, security. That's, that's how you get money from the government. Now, obviously, uh, right now on the UFO front, we're in this uh, 
attempted disclosure age and people online are very getting very, very excited about it. But, you know, I try to be cognizant of the fact that there's still a chance of this getting swept under the rug. And I do wonder if we're in a similar situation when it comes to Psy. Uh, as you were talking about, there we have uh, effects in quantum biology, and it seems like more and more we're moving into uh, a new paradigm of scientific understanding, or at least things are trending that way. Do you think that there's a real danger of this research getting further stigmatized and sort of shoved into the closet again? I don't think so. I, I think that the the plausibility arguments that could be made uh, that this is not spooky stuff, but actually fits into not exactly where the edge of physics is now, but is coming soon. We'll we'll have plausibility stories that involve probably something like the brain operates partially in quantum in a quantum way. That, that automatically means that there will be non-local effects of your experience. So suddenly the whole realm of perceptual psi will be plausible. Uh, and then uh, because of quantum observer effects, psychokinetic things will be plausible. Like we'll have, we'll have some kind of explanation. So it doesn't even matter if those explanations are correct. What does matter is that there's a plausible narrative that can go along with it. So the, the, the story I like to, to use with here is uh, something like 30 or 40 years ago, acupuncture from a Western perspective was considered to be laughable nonsense. So besides the fact that a U.S. senator or a U.S. congressperson was, was helped in, a, uh, I think, an appendectomy or something like that, some surgery only using acupuncture as the anesthetic, that, that was important. But what became more important was that early on, somebody said, well, maybe sticking a needle into your nervous system creates endorphins. It stimulates the body to create endorphins, and that's why pain is reduced. That opened the floodgates because now somebody who was like a medical researcher who wanted to study this phenomenon said, oh, it's all about endorphins. We can study that because we know about endorphins. So again, it doesn't matter if that was even true. I suspect it isn't true. Like that's not the only explanation, but it opened a way to talk about this in, in a way that did not require spookiness. It said there's a way to connect it then with what we know about the rest of science. So for psychic phenomena, I think that we're going to follow the same track. We'll say, yeah, part, brains are partially operating in a quantum fashion. And if that were true, then this whole range of experience should happen occasionally. It would be pretty weak, you know, but it should happen. And then, oh, by the way, there's 140 years of evidence in controlled laboratory studies that actually say, yeah, that actually does happen. And so... While that literature is mostly invisible to mainstream scientists today, it will be seen in retrospect like, a, like dominoes that have fallen down and are suddenly coming back up, right? It'll, it'll reconstruct the entire history of things. Oh, yeah, we used to dismiss that, but now we know it's real. Just like in the 1700s, uh, the French Academy was dismissing the idea of meteorites because you can't have rocks falling out of the sky because how would they get up there in the first place? Well, after the idea came along that, well, yeah, there, there are rocks out there, and sometimes they, they come into the earth, well, then they accepted it. So there are all kinds of things that science is not ready to, to accept. Another good example is ball lightning, right? It used to be considered laughable nonsense. There are now lots of very interesting models 
for how ball lightning can exist, and it's no longer considered laughable. And the giant squid. Yeah, giant squid. Yep. Lots now, of things. I mean, so have you seen any signs that that uh, that there it, things are shifting already, or is that still coming down the line? Well, one big difference is uh, that again, go back thirty or forty years, the only people who would admit that they're interested in consciousness as a topic of study were philosophers engaged in the mind-body problem. Right, like that, you could do that as a philosopher. No scientists were looking at this at all. Because within a scientific paradigm, not too long ago, the notion that there was consciousness was considered laughable. Right. Right. From behaviorism, because of B.F. Skinner and those kinds of folks. So for 50 years, no scientists would ever admit that they were interested in what is consciousness, where does it come from, and so on. So there were no conferences. There was there were only philosophers. Now there are so many conferences that like one every week I'm invited to a new one that's somewhere in the world. So this is a very dramatic change. Yeah. That change is parallel to the uh, resurrection of psychedelic studies. And so you look historically in the 1960s, as the rise of psychedelics was happening, very strong interest in psi. Why? Because a lot of scientists were having these experiences too. Same thing is happening now. So what we hope is that, uh, you know, this is not a linear increase is more like a spiral. Sometimes it goes down a little bit, but more or less the spiral is continuing to go in a direction where eventually science and esoteric ideas are going to converge. Because if if there's any truth to I, to any of that, which I think there's truth on both sides, it has to converge. And I think that is happening. I mean, we're seeing it more and more uh, just of just general interest amongst other scientists saying, and at least within, even just within ufology, even like mainstream scientists who are interested in UFOs. And then they tend to like, a lot of them tend to end up falling on the side of consciousness is somehow involved in all of this. So, I mean, I, I think, I think it's only a matter of time at this point that it's more, it's just going to keep ramping up, hopefully. You know, all things can all things considered. Now, I suppose though, the question would then be for us here in this basement. Um, I mean, for those of us who are outside the scientific community, is there anything that we could do to try to uh, help this along, or to to uh, help mainstream academia ditch the stigma and more seriously investigate these matters? Is there anything? Um, I guess parading outside of a university that. That might start it. But I think the answer is probably not. The, the university environments uh, are rather strange. You know, the, the, the acad academic life is all about ideas. It's an ideological world. There is, there's the aspiration for academic freedom, for openness to new ideas, but that never happens. It's simply not the way that it works. Because you can imagine if, you, if you're a professor and you spend your life working along a certain line of ideas and those ideas got you tenure and you're well known for those ideas, if some upstart comes along and says, well, you know, that's not completely right, the pushback is really strong. They're protecting their identity at that point. So this is why Max Planck said that science progresses by funerals. And, and that is absolutely true. It's it, it, new ideas come along with younger people who don't have an entire career based on 
on protecting their their ideas. And I've seen I've seen this kind of behavior again and again in the academic world, which is why I no longer want to work there, and haven't for quite a while now, even though I'm a professor. Um, so yeah, I mean, you you said you have to work within the constraints of there. There is a fair amount of freedom in the academic world, but it is nowhere near as open as it, it, as we would want it to be. And unfortunately, the the higher the higher you get in in terms of tiers of science, like you go to Harvard, Stanford, those kinds of places, the more difficult it is to entertain ideas that begin to challenge the status quo. So it's even more difficult. Uh, and so in terms, I don't remember if I wrote about this in, in Real Magic or not, but if I did a study looking at psychic phenomena and it came out with pretty uniformly negative results, I could publish that in any journal I wanted to. Mm -hmm. Because yep. that's, that is compatible then with what most scientists believe, or at least what most scientists believe that other scientists believe. Right. Right. So we've we've done surveys among academics anonymously, asking them uh, what do, what kinds of experiences have they had? Not what do they believe, but privately, what sort of experiences have you had? So here's a list of 25 different experiences that in any other context we'd call psychic, but we didn't use those terms. Well, how many? So on average, academics from top tier universities, over 90 percent said they had experienced at least one of those 25 experiences. And on average, eight of the 25, including things like levitation. Well, wow. levitation was quite small, yeah. but things like simple telepathy and precognition and so on, like huge numbers yeah. of academics have had these experiences personally. Will they talk about it? No, they won't. Wow, that, that's unfortunate. Risky. Yeah. Well, because it's like you said, that and anything outside that might dabble into the fringe, it's too risky for their career. Well, and I and honestly, I can't help but think that the paranormal community, or rather, paranormal pop culture, doesn't help. No, because yeah. it no. it still attributes these very, uh, I mean, very pseudo scientific ideas or these theories that are that have no basis, but they're interesting and fun to put on television yeah. to these ideas. And so it becomes attached to these ideas and kind of creates a whole circus around them. Yeah. Yeah. Circus atmosphere does not work in the academic world because you're no longer serious. Right. Uh, which yeah. is, which is unfortunate. It goes against my dreams of being a professor clown. <laughs> um, okay. Well, follow your dreams. Uh, you know, Joseph Campbell said that any student would ask, what should I do? And the answer is, Follow your bliss. Mm -hmm. Figure out a way of following your bliss, whatever that happens to be, and then you can make that your profession. That, yep. is, that is wonderful advice. And that moves yeah. us into our last question, which should be the easiest. What's next for Dean, and where can people find your work? Well, deanraden.com is my personal website. And I don't, I don't put new content all the time, but I have all, most of my publications there. So I put those there. And I also list events that I've done usually after the fact because they can't get around the updating it all the time. So I'm, I'm approaching uh, 700 interviews. Wow. And I think after I get to 700 or 750 or something, I'm going to slow down because, uh, you know, why bother? <laughs> so, I mean, if, if I'm, if I've written a book and I'm doing promotion, then, then I take on everybody. Yeah. Uh, otherwise the reason why I continue to do the, uh, these kinds of interviews is because 
I think it's very important to be able to tell the story about what science is doing in this mm -hmm. domain to as many people as I can reach. Absolutely. So I, I don't want to travel everywhere all the time. And this is a way of reaching a new audience, typically. Uh, and knowing that, yeah, there is actual science underneath this, and we know a little bit, and we can know a lot more eventually. For many people, that uh, is either comforting because they're always wondering about this weird stuff that happens to them. They don't know what to think about it. Well, it's my usual comment then is, no, it's actually pretty common. A lot of people, including academics, have these experiences. If it's disturbing, well, then you don't need to go see a psychiatrist or somebody, go to a therapist if it's disturbing. If it's not disturbing and you just wonder about it, well, there's plenty of books out there. We'll talk about this stuff in great gory detail and many more books now than there used to be which is, I think, another good sign. Absolutely. And it's a, it's a great news for us being a book club focused on this sort of stuff. Yeah. I mean, that's, that, that's a big reason why we chose your book to do is just because it was you were doing actual science behind these topics that we were, that we're interested in, you know? And so seeing all the studies, like I think most of our conversation about it was just how impressive, like even at a, the statistical level that's, that this was coming up as, because you know, I never would have even fathomed that it would be like that, that you could get the kind of results that, that you can. And then like as an example, like from your book, I wrote an RNG in Excel just kind of messing around. And I've gotten impressive results just from that. And, that's not, and the RNG in Excel isn't even a true randomizer. But still having gotten pretty impressive results from that just messing around is really, really interesting. And I never would have had the idea without your book. So I... You know, if nothing else, I'm grateful just from all that I learned from it. Yeah, of course, you, the, the random generator function within Excel is deterministic. The only way that you can get different results is because it's timed basically on when you ask, you, when you start the seed for the pseudo-random generator. So that we, we always use true generators for that purpose because then it's, you know, it's based on hardware and not an algorithm. Yeah, I'm building a new one in, like inside Visual Basic now just for fun. Or not Visual Basic, inside Visual Studio now, uh, doing mm -hmm. it that way so that it's true random. All right, well, thank you so, so much. Uh, we are very thankful for your time, and we know our listeners are going to be thrilled to hear you. Mm -hmm. uh, so before we head out, anything else, any last thoughts you wanted to share? Well, so you asked what am, what's next for me? Oh, yeah, that's the right. That's the rest of the question. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, so it's it's a, not easy to answer because I always have uh, at least a half a dozen projects going at the same time. So uh, one thing I've been working on is uh, since we know in the laboratory that uh, we unconsciously are quote feeling the future all the time, uh, what happens if you have a hundred million people? where you're able to track them and see whether or not they can feel the future. So the way I'm doing that is through uh, a sentiment measure based on tweets. So there's about 100 million tweets in English every day and then a bunch more in other languages. And you can there's an API that allows you to draw Twitter down. I don't know if that's going to continue now that yeah. Elon Musk is in charge of the thing. Yeah. But... Up until now, uh, there's there's uh, some websites where you can get the data. So, and, and the, the sentiment is an analysis of the words used in the tweets. And the analysis is based on the happiness or sadness of the words. Okay. So you get a, a happiness metric, like fluctuating all the time. 
And the way you can see then, if you look at that over many years, that uh, the, the tweets become happier around planned things, like the Super Bowl is happening, like Christmas is happening. Something is happening that's usually planned. You see this big positive spike. People are happier. And every time there's a, a school shooting or a terrorist activity or something like that, big negative spike. So I'm not interested in whether on positive events because those are planned and you know you can see uh, you can see it in the sentiment data. Even though people may not be talking about Christmas is coming, the the happiness metric starts going up. So it's like it's it's infusing everybody. What's more interesting is what is happening to negative mood before something horrific unfolds. Because then if it turns out that we are always feeling our future a little bit, you multiply that by 100 million people and you have a way of measuring that on a daily basis, the question arises as to whether or not you can see that as a trend in this uh, Twitter sentiment data. And it turns out that you can up to two weeks in advance. So the way to do it is two weeks, first of all, I have to select out the most negative events. And then we have data from 2009 till now. So we have a lot of, a lot of data to work with. You can select out those events and then you look two weeks before and you look at the slope. So each, each one of these events, you look at what is happening to the sentiment data beforehand up to two weeks. So, and we have it in 10 languages. So it's, it's English, Russian, uh, Arabic. I mean, lots of, and then lots of European languages. Overall, there's, there's significant evidence that, that mood up to two weeks before a very negative event is declining significantly. So the next steps then, so I've already shown that, the next steps is that tells us when something's gonna happen. But what's more important then is, well, what's gonna happen? Yeah, so what how do you it? tell what it is, yeah. Yeah, and the, then the other question is, well, where is it? Well, so we have geolocation data. We can in principle figure out where the epicenter is. Finding out the what is more difficult because you have to look at the context of the words to see if it provides a clue. So I haven't gotten to those parts yet. I'm still like finishing up the simply the when we know something is going to happen. And so th this is part of part of one of my interests is how do we how do we change how people perceive these kinds of phenomena? One of the ways is to show that it is pragmatically useful. So it would be really useful if we had a way of taking advantage of millions of people just going about their daily business and taking advantage of fluctuations in their mood as a way of saying, we need to pay attention to this place at this time for this reason. Then we have a way of intervening and suddenly we have a very interesting causal paradox, right? Can you, just like in the movie Minority Report, yeah. mm -hmm. right? If you have pre-crime and you stop it before it happens, well then how come you got the information in the first place? So, but these, these become really interesting questions and maybe it's pragmatic at the same time. So that, that's one of the projects I'm working on. Well, it's that is fascinating. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, no, we definitely uh, look. We definitely look forward to seeing the results whenever, wherever, or whenever they're published. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, thank you very, very much for your time. We really appreciated it. Yeah. Uh, I feel like my brain is leaking out my ears because <laughs> I have learned so much. So thank you so much for that. Uh, other than that, give you back the rest of your evening. So thanks again. You're welcome. Thank you.